People can handle no. What they can't handle is not knowing. And so often that's what happens. We just let those kind of requests languish in our in our inbox because we're afraid to say no. And that's that's the kind of thing that makes people angry. Not when we actually say no. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Welcome to the Happen to Your Career podcast. If you've ever found yourself with more obligations than you feel like you can humanly handle or looked at your calendar and to-do list and realized that somehow you've accumulated much more than you can possibly do or than you can enjoy, then you're going to love our guest today. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, former CEO of Thomas Nelson, and current CEO of his own company, Helping Leaders Around the World. And also, on a different note, a couple of years back, my wife and I used his best year ever goal setting program and experienced, wait for it, wait for it, our best year ever in both our business and our lives. So I'm excited to welcome to the show, Michael Hyatt. How are you, Michael? I'm doing great, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got to ask, I believe I read someplace that you have now been married for 40 years. Is that right? Did I did I understand that correctly? That that's, is that's true. That is amazing. I have a ton of respect for that. My my wife and I are working on approaching 20 here. So I have an immense amount of respect for 40. Okay, so selfishly, I'm curious. I've been married for 40 years. What is the biggest piece of advice that you would give me uh, on working on the halfway point? Wow. <laughs> no no pressure or anything, right? <laughs> I would say uh, always give your spouse the benefit of the doubt. You know, they don't wake up usually with ill intentions. If they've done something to offend you or hurt you, it was probably accidental. So assume the best and go from there. I love that. And I appreciate that immensely. Thank you for indulging me. And I have so many different questions. We're going to spend a bit of our time today talking about how to say no at work. But I'm really curious. You've worked in a variety of different environments, had different types of leadership roles. And I'm curious what you feel like are some of the biggest places many leaders and professionals miss the opportunity to say no at work or in their lives? What have you experienced? Well, I found that most people that are in a leadership role got there in some measure because they were likable. And A part of being likable in our culture is saying yes to people, being compliant. And I think that most of the leaders I know and coach are recovering people pleasers. I know I am. And unfortunately, while that can, um, you know, help move you up the ladder, it can also get you into trouble. I, I, I remember a quote from Warren Buffett. He said the difference between successful people and really successful people is that the really successful people say no to almost everything. Mm. Which is also a totally different outlook, you know, going from say, I'm going to say no to a few things to I'm going to say no to very nearly everything. That's a completely different mindset that goes along with it, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think 
it takes to shift in that mindset because that's huge. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the way that you can give people a firm no is by having a really firm, positive yes on the other side of it. You know, everything in life is a trade-off and especially time because time, I, time is a finite resource and it's a zero-sum game. So that if I choose, for example, to have coffee with a friend or breakfast with a friend, you know, that, that's going to mean that I'm not going to be able to work out because I work out in the morning. So there's a trade, there's a swap there. And most of us aren't conscious of the fact that we're, that we're making a swap. And I think that what we've got to do is get clear on the bigger question of yes. What are we saying yes to? What do we want our life to be about? What do we want our career to be about? What is the vision that we have? In fact, that's where I start with my book, Free to Focus. The very first chapter is a book or a chapter called Formulate, where I talk about formulating a vision for it, for what it is that you want. If you don't have that vision, you're just going to be reactive in the moment, saying yes to whatever comes across your plate, whether it's a task assignment or a calendar invite or an opportunity. And before long, your your calendar is just full. You have no time for yourself, no time for the people you love uh, the most, and no time to really do the things in your career that advance it and give you momentum and cause you to continue to grow and expand. So that's that's great. I love the concept of formulating a vision for what you want. We spend a lot of time on our show talking about that exact thing. And I'm curious then, what what does that mean for you? Or what's an example of that for you? You know, what what goes into your vision of what you want? Yeah, well, one of the things um I I learned as I began to study productivity a couple decades ago is that for a lot of people and for and for most people I think productivity is an end in itself it's just they want to you know be more productive so they can be more productive so yeah. they can be more productive <laughs> and I think productivity is a means to an end and for me the biggest vision is freedom and in fact that's why the book is called free to focus and I I, I specifically have a vision for four aspects of freedom first of all I do want to have the freedom to really focus and in a distraction economy, the distraction economy that we exist in today, where we're constantly being pinged for this thing or another, notifications are going off on our phones and our desktop, it's very difficult to focus on the work that matters most. Not all work is created equal, but 20% of the work that we do, according to uh, the Pareto Principle, leads to 80% of the results that we experience in, in our business or in our life. So I want the freedom, first of all, to be able to focus, do the creative work, the hard work, the problem solving that's going to move the business or move the needle in my business in my life. Second kind of freedom I want is I want the freedom to be present. You know, I want to be when I'm out on a on a date with my wife, like I'm going to be tonight, by the way, with the secret for long term marriage. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that. Keep it coming. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, we'll be out on a date tonight and I want to be fully present with her. I don't want to be checking my phone. I don't want to be worried about something at work. I want to be fully present with her to engage and to just share our lives with one another. Third freedom I want is I want the three, the freedom to be spontaneous. I don't want to have so much of my schedule spoken for every little bit, you know, planned out that I don't have the freedom to stop what I'm doing, to go help a friend, to visit with my grandkids when they come over. I want some white space, some breathing room in my schedule so that I'm not, you know, constantly overdrawing, as it were, my bank account. And then finally, I want the freedom to be able to do nothing. Nothing is way underrated in our culture. And yet, when you think about it, when you're doing nothing, sometimes that's where you get the biggest breakthroughs of all. You have that creative thought that, that spawns a multimillion dollar idea. 
or you figure out how to, to fix a relationship that's broken. But it takes that time of doing nothing to get those kind of breakthroughs. So again, I'm after freedom. That's my vision. Michael, do you find that when you're speaking about freedom to do nothing, is that something that people take to or enjoy the idea of, or do you find that there's a lot of apprehension around that? I'm, I'm curious. Well, yeah, I would say I would say it's twofold. First of all, people are super excited about the idea. They just kind of uh, have a collective sigh of relief when I Whew. when I teach on this topic because <laughs> they think, man, how awesome would that be to not be running from this thing to the next out of breath all the time? Yeah. But then immediately they feel some ang- anxiety because they say. What would I do with myself? And I, I really learned about this fourth kind of freedom when I visited Italy. My wife and I went there for a month about two years ago. And uh, we were there in the summer. And they actually have this phrase, uh, la dolce farniente, which means the sweetness of doing nothing. And they practice it so well. So, for example, you know, about five o'clock in the afternoon, everybody, if you're in Rome or Florence or really any city of any size, people pour into the streets. You know, they have cocktails together. They just visit. They're they're basically doing nothing, enjoying life together. And we relished that. But we found that unless we have something planned in that nothing time, you know, in other words, we got to be recreating or spending time with people. But left to ourselves, if we don't have a plan, then we just drift back into work because that's what's familiar. And for a lot of people, they love their work, but they end up working all the time. No weekends, no free nights, no vacations all the rest. That's really interesting. And on one note, I can't wait to experience that for myself on Italy. Italy is on our list. We pull our kids, my wife and I pull our kids out of school uh, about once a year and typically go four to six weeks living in another country. So uh, very excited for that and uh, probably have many more Italy questions. However, on that note, though, when you're talking about unless we have something planned, Expand on that for me. You know, what does that what does that actually look like? How do you how do you do that? Because I think that it's easy to say that, and I think we might understand that concept logically. However, I feel like that's one of those things that is much more difficult to do or to make work in reality. So how how do you actually make that work for our listeners? Well, well, first of all, I struggled with it myself because what I would would do is often go into a weekend with the best of intentions. Yeah and find myself drifting into work, grabbing my laptop, picking up my phone, and engaging in work almost mindlessly or reflexively or maybe even compulsively. Sure. So one of the tools uh, that I talk about in the book, and we also have, I have a a paper planner that's grown quite popular called the Full Focus Planner. And there's a worksheet in there that's called the Weekly Preview. And I do mine on Sunday evening, and there's one each week that comes around. But we have a a step in there called the Weekend Optimizer, where we talk about and encourage people to plan how they're going to use their free time for this, to rejuvenate. Because you're going to be more productive, more focused, make a greater contribution, be more satisfied at work when you give yourself time to rejuvenate. So that looks like things like sleep, asking yourself the question, how much sleep do you want to get this weekend? Do you want to take a nap? Do you want to sleep in? What do you want to do? What about eating? What kind of nourishment? Do you want to go out with friends? Do you want to spend some time with them? Do you want to explore some restaurants or maybe stay home and make something um, for dinner that you haven't made before? Exercise. Maybe go on a hike, play golf, go fishing, something with uh, related to exercise. Connection or play. You know, um, meeting with friends. What are the few relationships 
that are life-giving to me, that really give me energy, that sustain my spirit, that encourage me, and being really intentional with those kinds of things. So I think, you know, for, for me, I on Sunday night, I plan the next weekend. So that gives me a week to kind of set it up, contact my friends if I want to go out with them, get a tea time if I want to golf, plan a fishing trip, whatever it is. But I want to make sure that, that I've got positive things that are not work that I'm going to be doing that next weekend. Mm. I found that really difficult as well. And it's certainly been a progression for me. But I've almost had to trick myself into it in some ways, <laughs> as, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, you know, even to the point where, you know, one of the things that that my wife and I do at this point is we'll give our kids coupons during the Christmas season of a variety of ways that we want to spend time with them and with each other and everything like that so that it gets put on our calendar for the entire rest of the year. But my my question becomes like what are some of the what are some of the things that you've seen to make this easier as a process overall because i think it really can be challenging and even if you know have on my calendar to be able to sit down and plan out the next weekend sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in the variety of other things or feel like i can't you know plan sure. that additional time too well i think that this is where it helps to have an overarching vision for your life in a book I wrote a couple of years ago with my friend Daniel Harkavy, it was called Living Forward. It's about how to have a life plan. Yeah. And one of the things we talk about there is creating a vision for each of the major domains of your life. So as it turns out, there's more to life than work, right? So there's, you know, there's your personal life, your intellectual life, your spiritual life, your emotional life. There's your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your kids, your work, your hobbies, all that stuff. And they're all interrelated so that if I don't take care of myself in terms of my health, that could have a very negative impact on my business. If I get sick or if I have a heart attack or I'm disabled, that's not going to be so good for my career. Conversely, if I'm in a work that's causing me a lot of stress, if I'm burned out, that's probably going to have an impact on my most important relationships and maybe even my health. So I think getting clear, again, we kind of go back to the vision. You know, what I want, what do I want my life to be about? You know, one of the things that humans have the ability to do is to deceive ourselves. You know, we, we <laughs> kid ourselves yes. and we, you know, we think my current situation, I know I'm stressed out, I'm working hard, I'm in this hustle mode right now, but and here's where the deception comes in. It's only temporary. And I used to tell my wife, Gail, I'd say, you know, as soon as we get through this, this launch, or as soon as we get through, you know, I get adjusted to this new job that I've just taken then everything will settle down. But these things that are temporary have a way of becoming permanent unless we have a vision for a different quality of life. And then planning the next weekend becomes a step in that direction. But I've got to keep the vision in mind or I'm probably not going to do it. That's interesting. And I think that I know I asked you earlier about, you know, what are some of the opportunities that we have to say no. And I almost think that that is one of those that we're missing in a variety of different ways where it's a, you know, when this happens, then it'll be different. However, what right. I'm hearing you say is that, you know, if that initial vision isn't there to actually do it differently, then when it happens, uh, things aren't going to change unless, unless there's some other foundation that you're moving towards. Is that correct? Well, yeah, it's absolutely correct. I mean, I think that for the average person, They've got so much stuff they're trying to manage because they've got their work life, they've got their career, maybe they're involved with their church or their community. Yeah. 
And so there's all these demands, all these requests that are being made, all these uh, meetings people want you to go to, all these opportunities, and they're all good. But we've got to have a filter. Otherwise, we're going to be overwhelmed. It's, it's like us standing on the beach facing a tsunami. But one of the tools that I, I talk about in the book, Free to Focus, is the freedom compass. And this is a way to think about your book or your work that I think is a game changer. And if you could just imagine a traditional compass, imagine a, a circle and it has, you know, north where you would expect it at the top of the circle, south at the bottom. And north represents in the freedom compass the things that you love, the things you're passionate about, the things that give you the most joy and satisfaction. It represents those things as well as the things that you're proficient at, the things you're really good at, the things that people are willing to pay you to do. And so I call that in the book, the desire zone. This is true north. This is the work where you make your greatest contribution. It's the highest and best use of you. Now, directly opposite from that, which is due south, is the drudgery zone. These are those things where you have no passion and you have no proficiency. Mm -hmm. You don't enjoy them and you're not good at them. So when I left the corporate world and I was managing uh, a very large company at Thomas Nelson Publishers, and we were doing about a quarter of a billion dollars a year, I had two full-time assistants, and all of a sudden I stepped out of that and found myself a solopreneur. And I was trying to do everything, not just the things I loved and the things I was good at, but increasingly I was doing administrative tasks that for me were not in my desire zone, like they are for my current assistant, but they were in my drudgery zone. And besides that, people weren't paying me to do those things. And so the, the thing about this uh, freedom compass, and by the way, there's two other zones too, where you know, like the disinterest zone, where you might be good at it, but you don't really enjoy it. For me, that was accounting. Or the distraction zone, where you might enjoy doing it, but you're not very good at it. And it's where you go to escape or waste time. Mm -hmm. But the key to being able to pare down everything and being able to know what you're going to say no to is to know what's in your desire zone. And for most of us, that's a small band of activities where we can really feel good about the work and we can really do a great job. And the more we can focus on that, the bigger, better results we'll experience in our life and in our work. Does that make sense? That makes a ton of sense. And it also raises another question. In the book, you spend time talking about automation and different yeah. ways to automate and even some different areas to automate. And... I am curious, what are some of the ways that we can use automation in order to spend more time in our desire zone? And specifically, I'm looking for, you know, what are, what are some examples of that in addition to those ways too? So help me understand that. Sure. Let me put it in context. This is kind of the middle, the middle third of the book where I talk about cutting all those activities, say no to all those activities that are outside of your desire zone. Yeah. So I do that under three overarching principles, eliminate, automate, and delegate. And they're in that order for a very specific reason. First of all, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to automate something that should be eliminated. And we don't want to uh, automate something that needs to be delegated. So we eliminate everything we can. Of what's left, we ask ourselves the question, does a human need to do it? And if so, if, if, not, if not, then we can automate it. If so, then we have to ask the question, am I the right human to do it or could it go to some other human? And that's delegation. Let me, let me ask you about that really quick, though. So how do we decide if a human needs to do it? Well, I think you work through those in, in the exact order I gave them. First of all, does this need to be done at all? Can I eliminate it? 
Second question, could a machine do this? Could this be automated in some way? If the answer to that is no, then if, then you're basically to the place where a human has to do it. Then the question is, am I the right human to do it? Mm. And if not, that it gets delegated. Appreciate that very, that makes, very much. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Okay. And okay. so then what's our next Can we go step? back to automation? Yes, please. Yeah, so automation. Okay, so one of the things I do talk about, and this is, you could argue that this is the human element, but is self-automation, where you essentially at least subtract the mental focus that it requires to do it. And I talk about four specific daily rituals that everybody needs to have. And so I talk about a morning ritual. In other words, what are the things that you can do every day that set you up for the best possible day? Athletes do this. You know, they have a pregame ritual. And sometimes it's a little bit superstitious, but they go through the same things to give themselves the mindset, put themselves in the best place physically so that they can go out and win the game. So a morning ritual. Then I, the next ritual is a workday startup ritual. So instead of, you know, checking email all through the day, why not do that as a part of your workday startup ritual where you go through a handful of things, take about 20 or, or 30 minutes, and then you can get on to the deep focused work that is what you're actually paid to do. And then a workday shutdown ritual where you do that same thing again, except now you're trying to disengage from work so that you can leave it behind and give yourselves fully to the evening's activities, whether that's you know time with family or time in recreation or whatever it is. And then finally, an evening ritual so you can set yourself up for the best possible sleep. Because as it turns out, being rested is one of the most important things you can do to be more productive and more focused. Sleep all by itself will make you more productive. And a lot of people try to be more productive by cheating on sleep, but that's why uh, they can't focus. That's why they can't concentrate. That's why you try to read a book late at night and you keep reading the same paragraph over and over again because you're tired and you can't focus. So that's self-automation, doing those rituals. But another kind of automation, and here's, here's what I discovered kind of by accident about 20 years ago, and I found out that, or just discovered that the same kind of requests were coming in over and over again. And so I started to catalog them. So I'd get a request from somebody to, you know, serve on a nonprofit board or another request to make a charitable contribution or another request to get together with somebody for coffee and, and just so they could pick my brain. And so I cataloged these and I came up with, I don't remember now, about maybe 40 of these. And I said, what if I created a template response so that I could say no to these requests, but say no with grace? so that I felt good about it and the person receiving the email felt good about it. And then I saved these as email templates. And I'll talk about the specific format, speaking of how to say no here in just a minute. So now when somebody sends me a request because I used to be a book publisher, people want me to review their book proposals and I, I just don't have time for that. I can't do it anymore. But instead of me kind of you know procrastinating because I'm not quite sure what to say and I don't want to let that person down, or letting it sit in my inbox until I finally get irritated enough that I get too aggressive in my response. Rather than that, I just grab an email template and I personalize it a little bit. And it takes me about 10 seconds to respond to that email rather than 10 or 20 minutes to compose one from scratch. Now, Scott, here's a cool thing. I save all of these as email signatures. So Typically, people have an email signature that they've created that, you know, has their phone number and their address, maybe their title, so forth. But the truth is, you can usually, with most uh, email programs, have an unlimited number of signatures. You can put all kinds of blocks of text in there and then just pull those down, select those as needed. And today, I've got probably 50 of them that I use on a regular basis. 
and it makes it so easy to respond when somebody writes in, and I can feel really good about the response. Now, can I just take a minute and tell you about how I say no with those? Please do. That's one of the that's one of the things I am anxiously awaiting for. So, yes. Okay. So, one of the best ways to say no, and I learned this from Dr. William Ury in his book, The Power of a Positive No, and that is this formula where whenever you say no to somebody, you use the yes, no, yes formula. You know, some people have called this the sandwich approach, but it's a little bit different than that. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to begin with an affirmation. I'm not going to try to shame people for making a request of me or make them feel small. I want to affirm them. So, for example, if somebody's writing to me, wanting me to, to review their book proposal, it might look like this. That first paragraph would say, hey, congratulations. You've done something that most aspiring authors will never do. You've completed a book proposal. That's one of the most important first steps you can make. Congratulations. So that's the positive yes, right on the front end. Then what I want to do is give them a no that's unambiguous. You know, now I'm going to say no in a way that's clear and doesn't allow for any weasel room. I'm going to establish a clear boundary, but I'm going to do it in a gracious way. So I might say something like this. I may, might say, unfortunately, due to my other commitments, I'm not able to say yes to your request. So what I've said there is I've linked it to my other commitments. I'm trying to be a person of integrity. I want to follow through on what I've already committed to. You know, I don't want to double book my time. And because of those commitments, and it's all absolutely true, I can't say yes to your request. But notice that it's unambiguous. So I'm saying it in a way, I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, check back with me in a couple of weeks. You know, I'm busy right now. Maybe I'll have time later. No, then I just have to deal with it later. So in a clear boundary where I, you know, put a line in the sand and say no. So that's yes, no, and then finally another yes, where I'm going to try to be helpful if I can be helpful. You know, maybe I could refer them to somebody else, or maybe I could just, you know, wish them well and say, look, I, you know, wish you, wish you the best for the book, all the best in trying to find a publisher. If you get it published, uh, please send me a copy, or I look forward to buying a copy or something that ends on a positive note. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I have never had a negative reaction to a no kind of email like that. Usually people thank me for getting right back to them. People can handle no. What they can't handle is not knowing. And so often that's what happens. We just let those kind of requests languish in our, in our inbox because we're afraid to say no. And that's, that's the kind of thing that makes people angry, not when we actually say no. I love that. And I so appreciate you going into detail on an example of that. And I know you have some examples in the book as well, but I'm curious for somebody who wants to sit down and write these type of templates, what would you recommend for them to be able to get started so they can start yeah, saying would, no with grace? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would do is I would develop what I call a template mindset. In other words, anytime, and this is an automation principle, yeah. but anytime you do any task, Ask yourself the question, is it likely that I will be doing the same task again? So if I'm getting a lot of requests for book proposal review, like I am, and that's not going to apply to most people, but whatever it is for you, if I'm getting that request a lot, then what I want to do is take some extra time on the front end and write a thoughtful response that follows that yes, no, yes formula, and then save it as a template so I can reuse it. You don't have to do all these at once. Just do them as they occur incrementally as you experience them. But it starts with that template mindset. And it's not just email. For example, when I'm making uh, slide deck presentations, because I do a lot of webinars and a lot of public speaking, 
I asked myself the question years ago. I said, is it likely that I'll ever do another webinar after the first one I did? Uh, yeah, pretty good chance of that. So I created a webinar template using Apple Keynote. So that's the basis of every webinar I ever do. I start with the template because it has the seven sections in a webinar that are all mapped out. And from there, it just becomes kind of uh, fill in the blanks or paint by number. So use a template whenever you can, because it'll save you time later. I appreciate that example personally. <laughs> I do a lot of webinars and public speaking as well. And I have been, unfortunately come to that conclusion much later than I, I wish I would have. So <laughs> thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, different question too. You mentioned startup ritual. And I'm curious what that looks like for you in your day. Your day startup ritual is I think what you had called it. What, uh, yeah, what does that so, look like for you personally? And another question, I, I was talking with one of our listeners yesterday, and they apparently are a fan of, of yours. They mentioned you offhand and like, well, I'm, I'm talking to Michael on the podcast tomorrow, so I can just ask him. They were curious what time you get up in the morning and how much sleep you get. Yeah. So um, let me start with the last question first. So yeah. I shoot for eight hours a night and I measure this rigorously using the Aura Ring, O-U-R-A, which tracks my sleep better than any device I've ever found. Love that. It's amazing. I've got one on my finger right now. Do you? Yeah, it is. It is amazing. And it's really accurate. But yeah. uh, so I'm shooting for eight hours, but uh, I almost always get, you know, seven hours and 15 minutes. A lot of it just depends on how much tossing and turning I'm doing through uh, through the night. But I, I find that I function the best when I do that. Uh, and by the way, I get up at 445. There, there so, you have it. You heard it here. Yeah. that's So I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question, but that's that's the time I get up. I get up at 445. Um, I do have an alarm set. It almost, I always, uh, almost always catch it before it goes off because I'm just, you know, acclimated to that. But my workday startup ritual consists of four items. First, I empty my email inbox. And, you know, I probably get 150 emails a day, but I don't see, I probably have five emails that I have to deal with in the morning. And here's why. Because my assistant, Jim, manages my email account. So I have two email accounts. I have the one that I give to everybody out there except the people on my staff. And that's the one that comes into Jim. And then I have a super private email address. And Jim drags the ones that demand my attention into my private email inbox. So when I wake up or when I get to the office and I'm doing my uh, startup ritual, I'm seeing only those few emails that he felt like he couldn't handle on his own. And then it requires my, my personal touch. So that's number one. Number two is that I review and respond to Slack messages. Now Slack is a piece of software that we use for all internal communication. It's sort of somewhere between a um, uh, email and text messaging, but we love it. We've been using it for about three years. Third thing I do is I check social media. Don't spend a lot of time there, but I'll check my Instagram account, my Facebook account, and my Twitter account, maybe respond to a few messages. And I've got a social media manager who helps me with the posting, so I'm just really replying to stuff. And then finally, I review and confirm my daily big three, the three items that I'm going to be focused on for today, three and only three items that I'm going to be focused on today that are really the important things that will really move the needle on my business. I really appreciate that. And I'm taking notes <laughs> for myself as well. And I'm curious on a semi-unrelated, semi-related note, 
you know, you, you mentioned like the aura ring as an example and aura measures a ton of different things, but that leads me to ask the question of, you know, what are some, what are some things that you measure in your life that maybe most people wouldn't think of, you know, whether it, whether it is health or fitness or sleep related or anything else along those lines, what are some things that you measure in your life that matter a lot to you, but maybe, uh, maybe most people wouldn't, wouldn't think about well, certainly all the things, all the various things in the, the business, you know, we have key operating indices that, you know, we follow and that's going to be different for every business. But in my personal life, the things that I uh, tend to measure, like I weigh myself every single day and I'm just trying to make sure that, you know, my mouth doesn't get too far ahead of my stomach and, uh, you know, I want to keep my weight, you know, managed. Uh, there have been times when I've been on various nutrition regimens where I've measured very carefully my food intake. Like I went on uh, the keto diet last August, and so my wife and I were both using a, an app called Carb Manager. Yeah, and it and it wasn't so much. Well, I, I'll say this: we weren't used to eating as much fat as the keto diet required, and we were tempted to eat too much protein and too many carbs. So by measuring it, it really kind of helped calibrate. And after we got into the rhythm of that, about after three months, we didn't feel like we needed to measure it anymore. So occasionally we'll do that. But um, another thing I measure on about a weekly basis is I'll check the, the ketones in my blood. You know, I've got a little $70 device that will check that with great accuracy. And speaking of blood, and, I mean, you asked, so I'm telling you, but yeah. uh, twice a year, I go in for a comprehensive blood panel, and then I sit down and talk about it with my doctor. And the thing that I love about that is it's an early detection uh, system because you can see so much, so many problems will show up in the blood before they show up anywhere else. And so for me, managing my health, managing my energy, and by the way, productivity is more about uh, energy management than it is time management. So I want to make sure that I'm getting adequate nutrients, that all my blood level, all the different uh, measurements are right. And so I follow that pretty uh, meticulously. So those are just some of the things I, I measure. I really appreciate that. And I'm also I'm very interested in what you just said. We've done a variety of different episodes on energy management as well. But I'm, I'm curious what you mean when you say hey, productivity is really much more energy management than anything else. Can you expand on that for me? Sure. Well, think about how much you can accomplish. Like for me, I'm a morning person. So in the morning, that time is so precious to me. You know, I can accomplish more in an hour than I can in the evening in three hours because I'm rested my blood sugar levels right, all of that, all about the energy management. So when I'm energetic, I can be more focused, I can accomplish more. And you know, a book that was really helpful to me was uh, Daniel uh, Pink's uh, book on chronotypes. Uh, I think it's called When. When, yeah, we've, yeah, absolutely. We had him on the podcast a short while ago. Great book. Oh, good. Appreciate you mentioning that. Awesome. Yeah, great book. And so I've realized that, that, for example, for me as a morning person, you know, as a morning lark, I like to do my most creative, most intense, most focused work first thing in the morning or early in the morning after I've done my, my morning ritual. And then I go through that trough, you know, that, that kind of declining period when I, my focus isn't so great. Usually that's right after lunch. And by the way, I take a nap for 20 minutes every single day. But after I get up from my nap, you know, I'm, I'm not at my best. I'm refreshed, but this is the great time to do administrative work or work that doesn't requ require a lot of creativity uh, not a lot of problem solving. And then I usually get a rebound, you know, a recovery later in the day, and then I can go back to some more uh, creative work. So 
knowing that's uh, super helpful to me. So, you know, I, I also think there's a big aspect of energy management that's just the decision you make to be energetic because your mental attitude, probably more than any other single item, affects how you feel about mm -hmm. yourself and the energy that you bring into the world. And I don't remember who first told me this. It's not original with me. And I'd cite the source if I knew it, but I don't. But whoever it was said, you got to decide in life whether you're a thermostat or a thermometer. In other words, <laughs> either either you you create the temperature or you reflect the temperature. And I want to be the kind of person that creates the temperature. I want to be a thermostat. You know, I want to have energy. I want to bring energy. And for me, a lot of times, most times, that's a decision. You know, I got in this interview with you. You know, I could... Yes, you know, so after lunch, my time, I could be a little grogged out, or I could say, no, I'm going to be energetic. Scott's got an awesome program with an awesome audience, and I want to bring my best, so I'm going to be energetic. Energy is a caused thing in that sense. Well, I appreciate you bringing the energy, Michael, very, very much for a variety of different <laughs> reasons. Uh, oh my goodness, we've covered a lot more different places and topics from... Uh, how to have a happy marriage all the way to uh, how to say no to a variety of things in between. So I so appreciate you covering so many different directions here. You're welcome. Many more than we than we usually get into one episode. And at, at this point in your life, because I would consider you a leading expert in the ability to be productive and saying no, you're definitely influencing uh, a chunk of the world in those areas. So what at this point in your life is most difficult for you to say no to now? I think the ongoing challenge for me is to say no to technology. Mm. Now, here's what I mean by that. I love technology. I consider myself a geek. You know, I've got, if you, if you could see the studio I'm in right now, I've got four Macs sitting on the desk in front of me. Yeah. I've, I've got two PCs across the room. And I've got my phone in my back pocket. The problem is all that technology, unless we have a clear philosophy of technology, and particularly as it relates to productivity, those can be an immense source of distraction. So I just recently read Cal Newport's new book, Digital Minimalism. Have you read that? No. What did you think of it? Oh, highly recommend it. Phenomenal book. Fantastic. But as a, re as a result of that, what I did was I took my very expensive iPhone XS Max, which I paid over $1,000 for, over $1,200 for, Yeah. and I removed email, I removed Slack, I removed every social media application with the exception of Instagram, but through screen time, I limit my access to Instagram to 30 minutes a day, and I gave my phone to my wife, and I said, I want you to enter a passcode for screen time so that I can't cheat uh, the system. <laughs> I love it. And so when I run out of Instagram time, I'm out of Instagram time. So the biggest hack, the biggest thing I struggle with and have to work on is keeping technology corralled and not taking over my life. And this, this is so hard, Scott, because all these tech companies are multi, multi billion dollar conglomerates whose one objective is to get you to use their devices and make it compulsive or get you to access their services, like in the case of Facebook, because their entire business model relies on that. You're the product. They're taking our attention, collectively passed, packaging it, and selling it to the highest bidder, advertisers. And so they're at war with our focus, with our attention. And they've got, they've got the benefit of being able to tap in and hack 
our biocircuitry because every time we check those services, we get a, a dopamine hit, a reinforcement that turns that into a compulsive behavior before long. So one of the best things I've found is to fight technology with technology and just take control of it. So even on my desktop apps, I use an app called Freedom, and you can find out more at freedom.to. But Freedom is an application that limits your access to apps and to websites for designated periods of time. And there's no way to defeat it. You can't cheat on the system without rebooting your computer. And what that does is gives me just enough friction to remind me of what my purpose is. That, you know, going to check, you know, Facebook compulsively for the 30th time today. No, you know, I'm in a deep work session and I'm going to stay focused. I absolutely love that and really appreciate you going into detail on that too. And again, thank you for, for such the, the range of areas that we have gone today. And the book that we've been mentioning again and again is Free to Focus. And Michael, where can people get that book and where can they learn more about you as well? Thank you. Well, the book is available wherever better books are sold, right? So it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere else. But I would suggest that people go to freetofocusbook.com, freetofocusbook.com, because there we're making available a ton of free bonuses, some amazing stuff related to the book. It's all free. All you have to do is buy the book wherever you want, come back, submit your receipt there, and that will unlock all these free bonuses. So we're really trying to drive people to buying the book and to sharing it uh, with their friends. For everything else related to me, you can find me at Michael Hyatt, and that's Hyatt with a Y, Hyatt.com. Amazing. Thank you, Michael. Uh, my wife will thank you for the, <laughs> for the advice as well, I'm sure. <laughs> if not now, then in years to come. And I really appreciate you making the time and taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate you. We've got even more in store for you next week, right here on the Happen Your Career Podcast. I'm very self-critical. So unless it's really amazing and we have this huge win, I'm not going to say anything at all to people. And that is something that I am working on is how to let people know the kind of how the sausage is made, that this is how this works and that that's part of the process and to educate and help people understand what it is that I and my team actually do. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait until you tune in. I'll see you right back here on Happen to Your Career. Until then, I am out. Adios. It helps so many people. When you t- when it, I'm sorry for the editing in advance. <laughs> Just giving you bloopers, I guess, sort of. And it means we get to have help either more, yeah, starting over.